Bob Murphy Show, episode 86. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. In this one, I am going to do basically... uh, Murphy on Hoppe. How's that for the link? What is happening here is a bunch of you had urged me to give some follow-up thoughts on the, if you want to call it a debate, or the pointed discussion I had with Stefan Kinsella back on episode 79 when we talked about Hans Hermann Hoppe's so-called argumentation ethics case for libertarianism. And so I thought, okay, yeah, I got, and, and judging from some of the reaction in the comments and also, you know, just when I posted it on social media and some of the comments there, it was clear that several listeners didn't understand exactly what my position was, or at least what my original problem was with the argument. And so why don't I go ahead and just crystallize all that and say where I think things have ended up now that I've talked with Stefan some more about it. But I was concerned if I did that and then just moved on with my life that it would look like, oh, gee, Bob doesn't talk much about Hoppe. And uh, what he does say is criticizing one of his, you know, claims to fame in, in libertarianism. And so what does that mean? And so lest it appear as if I think that, I know I know Hoppe has some who mildly disagree with him on various topics. Uh, I don't want it to come off like, you know, I'm saying, oh, yeah, those, those critics are right. And so what I also am going to do with the second half of this particular episode that you're listening to right now, which is episode 86, is I want to go through what to me was the best essay I've read by Hoppe. And it really transformed, well, yeah, but I think that's a, that's a fair verb, my understanding of Mises' a priori approach to economic science. So the essay I have in mind is Hoppe's Economic Science in the Austrian Method. So it's, it's like a, a booklet, actually, that um, the Mises Institute has put out containing Hoppe's thoughts on those topics. And it's it's really mind-blowing stuff, okay? So w- whether you agree with it or not, I think you need to read that monograph from Hoppe in order to fully appreciate where some of today's, let's call them Rothbardians, are coming from when they put so much weight on the a priori character of economics in the Misesian tradition, all right? Because I know... That's something that even I myself, when I was younger, I didn't care that much about it, right? I was like, hey, let's get into the economics. Let's tell people about uh, how artificially low interest rates cause the business cycle. That's what people care about. You know, this methodological stuff, eh, opera, who cares? That's just going to make people's eyes. And now that's not at all how I think. Now I see why it's a really big deal. And I understand why some of Mises' fans just really stress that as being so very important, such that there are people walking around today that if by the term Misesian, that's what they mean. If some if they say, like, oh, I'm a Misesian on economics, 
it doesn't mean, oh, I agree with most of what Mises says. They mean, where do you come down on the methodological foundation of economics itself? Is it like physics, where we have hypotheses and we go test them? Or is it more like geometry, where you start from axioms that seem self-evidently true, and then you logically deduce implications from them? All right, so those are two different enterprises. And notice physics seems to be pretty cool, and so does geometry, though, right? So it's not obvious that only one way is the appropriate method. It might depend on, well, what's the field we're talking about here? And so Mises and Rothbard and Hoppe, and now Bob, think that actually the method of geometry is closer to what we're doing in economics. But it's not math. That's another issue, too. Economics obviously isn't geometry, and it's not exactly analogous. And that's partly what Hoppe gets into in this essay and why it's so fascinating. Okay, but first let me review what we learned from my conversation with Stefan. Again, that was back on episode 79, bobmurphyshow.com slash 79, if you want to go review that. So here's the, the big picture. When Gene Callahan and I, a long time ago, wrote our critique of argumentation ethics, what we thought the argument was, and in fairness, this is how it's stated a lot, and I even think Hoppe, at least in some places, comes off like he's saying this, and to his credit, Stefan agreed that sometimes it, it could have been more precise. But what we thought the argument was goes like this, that in order for me to, well, let me back up a second. When you're going to have a debate with somebody, when you're going to argue over something and have rational discourse, you're committed to certain norms. And so clearly, if I took a gun out and pointed at your head and said, okay, we're going to have a debate over whether The Godfather is the best American movie of all time, and you're going to agree with me or else I'm going to shoot you in the head. I mean, there would be a certain irony there in reference to The Godfather, but notice that that wouldn't be an argument anymore. That would just be a series of threats and even if you, quote, agreed with me, certainly I didn't win the argument, right? So what Hoppe was trying to do, again, this is what I thought, was extend that and to say it's not merely the agreement that we're not going to use physical violence right now during the course of the argument. There are other things that are presupposed. And ultimately, if you push it to its logical conclusion, you get the full scope of standard libertarian property theory. And, you know, so how do you get from A to B? Well, things like, again, this is what I thought the argument was, in order for me to be able to debate you, I have to control my body. And so I have to, you know, so that implies self-ownership. If somebody else owns me, how could I be expected to carry on a, a debate, a vigorous debate and say what I really believe if ultimately I'm subservient to somebody else, right? By the same, you know, it's the same logic of, why me pulling a gun out would be inadmissible and I would be implicitly admitting I'm not having an argument anymore. Likewise, if you don't have standard libertarian property rights at your disposal, how can you be expected to carry on a legitimate defense of your side in the argument? That sort of thing. All right, so that's what we thought the argument was. And if that is what it is, there's lots of problems. So just to give a few and notice some of these are completely independent objections. For one thing, how do we contain what types of organisms that argument applies to? 
right? So why couldn't somebody from PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, I think that's what the P stands for, I think it's people, why couldn't they say, oh, yes, Hoppe's argument's amazing, and that's why we have to all be vegetarians, because, or maybe even vegans, because look it, you can't aggress against a cow, right? The, if, if, in fact, if you try to enunciate an argument to me by which you would say that the cow doesn't have self-ownership, you would be contradicting yourself, right? And, you know, so, so clearly that's not what Hoppe is trying to say. So whatever argument you would use to show that Hoppe's argumentation ethics doesn't apply to cows, and maybe you would say, well, because we're not going to be debating it to a cow. We're going to be debating it among other humans. Okay, so then by the same token, we can, you know, not apply it to billionaires and say, oh, billionaires don't get to keep their money. And we just won't debate a billionaire on it, right? So the rest of us can discuss amongst ourselves whether we should take all of the Koch brothers' money, or I guess brother at this point, or just, you know, half of it, but we're not asking them what their opinion is, right? We're talking among ourselves. Or government officials who are debating whether or not they should lock up marijuana users, they just won't directly ask a marijuana user, all right? So, so there's that kind of element involved. And you could say, oh, well, no, but we're, we're, we mean all human beings. That's who we, oh, okay, but why? Where'd that come from? That didn't come from argumentation per se. And if you want to say, oh, it's all people who are capable of having an argument. That's why we don't include cows, but we do include billionaires and marijuana users. Okay, well, what about people who are in comas? Or what about newborn infants? They can't have an argument. So do they not have libertarian property rights? Okay, so you see, you see the problem there. Like if you actually take it at face value, there was a lot of stuff that was assumed that popped out of the other end of the pipeline from that chain of reasoning that I want to say, no, it's at the very least, you have all this other stuff that you have to agree on first, like what type of organisms are property rights going to apply to. And that clearly doesn't pop out, at least not obviously, just from the fact that we're going to have an argument. All right. So there's that type of element. Uh, another problem, and again, this is a totally independent objection, is if we're going to say something along the lines of, I need to be in control of my lungs and my lips and so forth in order to carry on a vigorous defense of my side of the debate, and hence we need self-ownership. And so, you know, it would be a performative contradiction for someone to even attempt to argue against self-ownership. Okay, well, by the same token, I need to be standing somewhere in order to have a debate. Some wise guy, when I pointed this out on Twitter, said, well, you know, we could be jumping out of an airplane and at least have a conversation or a debate for a few minutes. Fair enough. But in general, you see where I'm coming from. And so does that mean the Georgists are right? That we all necessarily have to own at least some land? I mean, after all, how could you sit there and deny an attempt to rationally defend the proposition that everyone is not entitled to a parcel of land. Because for us to even have that conversation or that debate in the first place, we both have to be standing on some land, so we have to control it, so we have to own it, right? So what's the obvious libertarian response to that? Well, no, I mean, you don't have to own a piece of land to have a debate. You could just get some owner's permission to stand on the land during the course of the debate. That doesn't mean you're the owner legally. And so likewise, okay, well then the fact that we're going to have a debate here how does that prove that you have to own your body? Maybe you just temporarily have control of it and the true owner lets you use it for the course of the debate. 
right? So notice here, I'm not here making the case for slavery. My point is, what, if, if you didn't already know what you wanted the answer to be, namely that people have default self-ownership, they don't have default rights to own land, and we're talking about people, including infants and the elderly who are in comas, but we don't include cows. If you didn't know all that going into it, it's not clear how thinking through the logic of argumentation per se would make all those things pop out just the way you're expecting as a modern libertarian, right? So that's the kind of stuff Gene and I were getting into in our original critique. Now, what was interesting is, so I had Stefan on, again, that was episode 79 that Stefan came on. And in case you don't understand what, you know, why was I picking him? Stefan is like Hoppe's bulldog, right? So he's, He's the one who do, who's done a lot on that stuff and is one of the most uh, vociferous defenders of argumentation ethics. And so I had him on to discuss this stuff. And again, that was largely because the people wanted it, right? The supporters of the Bob Murphy show, I asked them in the forum on Facebook there. And by the way, you too could become such a person if you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. And so it was the fans supporters there in the in the forum who were like, oh yeah, totally. Bring bring Stefan on to talk about Hoppe's argumentation ethics, right? So that's why I did it. I had thought, I already knew what Stefan was going to say because I read his stuff and, you know, and I've told him this. I was mystified in his written responses when he was arguing with Gene and me. So back in the day when we had our article published, you know, he, we had written an earlier version of it, I think at antistate.com before we then submitted it to the JLS, the Journal of Libertarian Studies. So Stefan had responded, you know, to at least the earlier versions. And we were just talking past each other. Like, it, to me, it looked like he was not understanding what our critique was. And now, so in retrospect, now I totally get what was going on. Because what Stefan told me in this most recent conversation we had, I kept waiting for him to go into what I thought the mistake was, and he never went there. And so that's why if you were watching it closely, you would have noticed that at one point I finally said something like, huh, that's what you just said there, Stefan. That's not the argument that I took to be what Hoppe's position was. Okay. And so um, I, I'm i going to hear paraphrase, so I'm not claiming that Stefan would endorse this statement. But what what I took Stefan to be saying in which, you know, if, if this is what Hoppe's argument is, then I think it's much more defensible than the version that I thought it used to be, or that I used to think it was, is something like this, that just as it would be inappropriate to pull a gun out in order to get somebody to agree with you in the debate, in general, you need to have peaceful, voluntary discourse, relations among people in order to have a debate, right? Or, or perhaps going the other way, if you can understand why having peace is so essential to a debate, well, then just take that principle and apply it more broadly, all right? So I'm, I'm being a little bit loose here, but I think that's in fairness because I, I didn't see a step-by-step -step geometric proof in the way Stefan laid it out. But I definitely came away thinking it was something like, look at, you know, Bob, do you, do you disagree with me that the way to peace and minimizing coercion and, and aggression is through the libertarian property rights and to have that, the libertarian ethic, let's say, broadly endorsed. And, you know, I, I do agree with that. So, okay, so then 
can you see how anybody who's arguing against that is actually setting in motion forces that would actually make it more difficult to have reasonable debate on any sort of issue, including that of social organization. And yeah, I, I guess I agree with that too. All right. So there, there is a sense there in which you can see, okay, so if you already knew that libertarianism was correct insofar as the claims it makes, right? Because libertarianism is not a full-blown system of ethics or morality, right? It's, it's, it's actually just making fairly modest claims in the grand scheme of things, right? There's plenty of things that you could think are immoral, but that should be legal according to libertarianism, right? So libertarianism isn't giving you a full-blown theory of ethics. It's just saying, for example, it would be immoral to initiate force to stop someone from using heroin, Libertarianism per se doesn't take a stand on whether heroin use per se is immoral or not. Okay. So I could see how, yeah, if society at large embraced libertarianism, then it would facilitate discussions about all sorts of things. Okay. So there's a sense in which, okay, if you understand libertarianism and why it works and why it's a just approach, for other reasons, then Hoppe's argument sort of gives you a deeper insight. Like it, it digs the foundation even deeper than you would have originally realized. All right. So there, there's something there. And again, since this is still new to me, I'm probably not doing justice to it, but that's the kind of thing that I realized halfway through our conversation that Stefan was trying to say, or at least I took him to be saying. And so that's not wrong. Whereas again, what I took Hoppe to be saying for years, I just thought, well, no, that that's just wrong. That's a non sequitur. Whereas this is different. This is like, okay, I, if that's what you're saying or something along those lines, okay, I agree that's a true statement. And now, though, my reaction is going to be, I don't know how much that gets us, okay? Because, again, the argument itself doesn't establish that libertarianism is peaceful, right? Because if, if you did try to go right to there from the, you know, in the, in the context of having an argument with somebody, you know, hence argumentation ethics, I think you're going to run into a lot of roadblocks for the reasons that I said earlier, right? There's a lot you're going to have to first prove before you then try to go into the case you want to make, or you're going to end up proving way too much. You're going to prove that, you know, you can't hurt a cow because it's a self-owner or you, everyone owns a piece of land, that kind of thing. So now the, the problem though is that if you do need to rely on all that other stuff and that really what this is giving you is just a deeper appreciation for it, again, it's not clear to me, well, then how much does it get you, right? So, because it's, I think the reaction from Rothbard at the time, he's, he's in that Liberty Symposium. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but Rothbard's saying something like, Hoppe's done it. You know, I just had a natural rights foundation for my uh, version of libertarianism, but Hoppe's really pushed it and he's given us now an even more fundamental grounding for our theory, showing that if anyone even tries to rationally argue against libertarianism, they're engaged in self-contradiction. Wow. You know, that that's, what I, <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, like I said, but that was the way Rothbard approached it. And I've seen other fans of Hoppe's uh, argument say such things, right? That this has given us the most fundamental, conceivable grounding for our philosophy, showing that anybody who even tries to argue with us boom, is engaged in contradiction. What more could you ask for? And so again, my concern is, or my problem with that way of packaging it 
is is to point out that, well, wait a minute, that approach relies heavily on you already believing libertarianism on other grounds. And, you know, to show that, I thought it was interesting because I didn't know this, that Stefan admitted, or not that he admitted, but he mentioned that Hoppe adapted the argument from Habermas and that originally Habermas used the argumentation ethics to prove the case for democratic socialism. And so you can think about it. If you're a socialist, you could see where that would be pretty natural, right? I mean, you know, someone can't point a gun at you in the midst of a debate, but at the same token or by the same token, an employer can't threaten to withhold your wages unless you do his bidding, right? Because then you're not really free. So you can see how if you're a socialist, the way you look at the world and the power relations that it contains, you would think that's horrendous. So just as the libertarian who likes Hoppe's argument is going to say, oh, the, the norms associated with a voluntary rational discourse or argument necessarily implies self-ownership. Well, by the same token, a socialist is going to think, oh, yeah, the norms associated with rational argumentation are going to imply that the government's guaranteeing everyone a basic standard of living. Because if you were just at the mercy of the market, you wouldn't be secure. How could you be expected to carry on your side of a debate? You might be worried about, you know, your stomach might be grumbling. All right. So that's where I'm coming from here. So, and likewise too, I mean, couldn't a constitutionalist minarchist type person, if no one's done this yet, I mean, they could go write an article for the Claremont Review or something, making the case that, ah, the night watchman's state is the only logically defensible position. Because anybody who's attempting to argue for Rothbardianism, for example, well, we all know that anarchy would lead to a chaotic war of all against all. So that can't work. That's not peaceful. You can't have an argument when people are setting off suitcase nukes outside your apartment and, you know, evil road companies are just <laughs> surrounding you with a circle road and you can't get through and they're charging you $6 million tolls just to get outside your apartment complex. We can't have a world like that. So clearly anarchy's out and we know socialism doesn't work. So clearly the only logically, rationally defensible position is a limited government with a constitution, just like Benjamin Franklin wanted. And in fact, anybody who argues against that vision is engaged in a performative contradiction, right? You could see why they would think that, just like you could see why Habermas thought what he did and why Hoppe thinks what he did. So the, what's driving all that is not argumentation ethics per se in a disagreement over whether you can use violence in the midst of an argument, the disagreement is over views of what the right social order is and what will lead to peace and prosperity and what will lead to misery and tyranny. So I, I guess that's, that's my reaction after thinking about it with my conversation with Stefan is that, yes, the way he was trying to motivate what Hoppe's argument was, I realized, oh, okay, yeah, that's not susceptible to the critiques that Gene and I leveled in our JLS paper. And so, okay, you know, that makes it, but then I'm not sure what survives is doing all the work that a lot of its fans are assuming that it does. Okay. So that's my overall reaction to the conversation with Stefan. Folks, let's take a break from my discussion to talk about my book choice. So this is a 300-ish page book that is a distillation of what I think were the most essential components of Mises' magnum opus, Human Action. And it's written to be accessible at the undergrad level. So you don't need any prior knowledge of 
economics, let alone Austrian economics, to understand the book. And why it's relevant to this particular episode is I spend the first few chapters in choice laying out the foundations of economic science. So if you like this kind of stuff that I'm talking about in this episode, my book choice is where to go to see you know, my thoughts at length on that. And you say, what do you mean your thoughts? Well, because I agree with Mises on this. This is something that, that I say, I originally didn't think this stuff was that important, but come on, let's get to the good stuff. And now as I get older, I realize that all oh, this is critical. How can you even talk about economics if you don't even know what the scope of the field is? And so, and I don't think it's a coincidence, by the way, that the people that I tend to agree with on policy matters, also I tend to agree with on methodological matters. I don't think that's a coincidence. And I also don't think, as the critics would allege, it's because we're dogmatic. And, oh, yeah, you shield yourself from empirical observation. That's why you can sit in the corner with your ideological cranky view. I, I don't think that's what's going on either. So in any event, check out my book, Choice. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash choice to get more information on how to order it. So now I'd like to turn to Hoppe's essays which the titles here are Praxeology and Economic Science. And then the second one is On Praxeology and the Praxeological Foundation of Epistemology. So in this first essay, Praxeology and Economic Science, Hoppe goes through and he, first of all, let me just read this quote from Mises. I think basically I'm going to be doing like the fifth grader when they do a book report and just say, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. I think that's the easiest way to go through this. So here is a quote that Hoppe reproduces from Mises. It's from Human Action, actually. It says, talking about praxeology, its statements and propositions are not derived from experience. They are, like those of logic and mathematics, a priori. They are not subject to verification and falsification on the ground of experience and facts. They are both logically and temporally antecedent to any comprehension of historical facts. They are a necessary requirement of any intellectual grasp of historical events. All right, so that's how Mises is trying to show you that you know, economics, which is a subset of praxeology. So praxeology is the logic of human action or the science of human action as such. And economics is just the most developed subfield of praxeology. That's the way Mises looks at it. And so there what Mises is getting at is to say, you don't go out and test economic propositions the way you could say, huh, is, uh, you know, Jesus, is light a particle or a wave? Well, let's go do some experiments. And, and even there, of course, that leads to problems. Or could something travel faster than the speed of light? Well, you can do armchair reasoning, but really, you go test it. That's not the way Mises thinks you derive laws in economics. He's saying you first think through and build up basic economic theory and that gives you a framework with which you then go out and look at the world. And again, if that sounds crazy to you, and, and, the, and this is the thing, the critics will say, well, wait a minute, if you're saying you just sit there and deduce it from your armchair reasoning, well, then it's not scientific, right? That's religion. In order for it to be science, it's got to be falsifiable. And Mises wants to argue that, no, that's not true. And so now I'm talking and I'm saying you wouldn't, say that about geometry, right? You wouldn't say that geometry is just religion because all you're doing is starting for, with some axioms about points and lines and blah, 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 and then deriving the Pythagorean theorem. And until you go out and take a ruler and a compass and 
go test to see whether the Pythagorean theorem is true, go measure a thousand right triangles and see what happens, then it's not really being rigorous. That's, if you think that's what you're supposed to do, you've misunderstood what it means to prove something in mathematics. Right? When you prove the Pythagorean theorem, you're not using the methods of the natural scientists. You're not using the, quote, scientific method of, well, first you get some observations, you form a hypothesis that yields a testable prediction, then you go run the experiment. And da, da, da. That's not what you're doing when it comes to proofs in geometry. And yet, geometry is not just arguing in a circle, no pun intended with circle, right? You think you're learning something real about the world or about reality, let's call it. Okay, so that's, I think, the best way to think about what Mises' position is with respect to economics, that you're deriving a bunch of statements or propositions and you're doing it through logical deduction, not through um, induction, if you understand that distinction, and they're derived from the basic premise or axiom that humans act. And that's why Mises titled his book Human Action. Even though you might have thought, why is, why is it called it? That's a weird, why doesn't he call it like principles of economics or something like that? But human action, what a weird title for his magnum opus. Well, that's why. Now you know. All right, so why don't I just go through this a little bit more? Because I like what Hoppe does here in the beginning of this essay. He first explains that, well, here's a good one. He quotes from Mark Blog, who's one of the big guns in the history of economic thought. And Blog says of Mises, quote, his writings on the foundations of economic science are so cranky and idiosyncratic that one can only wonder that they have been taken seriously by anyone. And so again, I, I can remember enough from when I thought like that, you know, or, you know when I was more of a, a positivist, I guess, that I can understand why Blog would write that. So to be clear, I never thought that they were that goofy. I just didn't care that much about it. I was more, come on, let's get to the good stuff. Let's talk about business cycles. Um, but I can see why somebody like Blog would say that, right? If you're steeped in a positivist tradition and you think that to be scientific, things have to be falsifiable, at least in principle. Otherwise, it's just definitions and arguing in circles, that kind of thing then to hear Mises talk about economics the way he does, that would just be scandalous. Let me quickly share an anecdote here that's relevant. And I want to just say it now because otherwise I might forget. Because again, I'm trying to motivate this. And I really get into this in my book, Choice. If you want to see where do I develop this train of thought the most fully, that's where I do it in the early chapters of Choice. But to understand where we're coming from here, when it comes to things like how to think like an economist. And you, you'll do this if you take an undergrad economics course, micro course, probably the first thing you do, like the textbook you're using probably has it in chapter one, and maybe even the first lesson that the professor will go through is something like thinking like an economist or how to think like an economist. And they'll go through a bunch of principles and it's things like people make decisions on the margin or every choice has an opportunity cost or value is subjective, right? Things like that. Like those are, you know, principles on how to think like an economist, okay? And that, and so the the book I was using when I taught at Hillsdale had such a had such an introductory chapter and it listed a bunch of principles like the ones I just said. And the last one was in order to be scientific, economic propositions have to be testable. It was something like that. 
So anyway, I'm going to the, through the with the class and telling them. I said, you know, that last one, you know, I don't I don't really agree with because uh, you know, and I, and I went through the the long spiel like that I went through. And one of the students raised his hand. And he said, and also notice none of the other propositions are testable. And so I thought that was that was interesting. And I was like, wow, that's a great observation. You're right, they're not. And so, um, for example, the proposition that, or no, when one of them was incentives matter, right? So at first, that sounds like it's a falsifiable proposition, doesn't it? But actually it's not when you know what economists, how they would deploy that insight, right? Because, and so this is the way I motivate it. I said, look, I'll go up to you. And this is a fun thing to do with a class because it gets the kid's attention. As I go up to the kid in the front row, and I say, hey, suppose I go up to you and I say, you know what? I'll give you $20 if you chop off your left arm. Are you going to do it? And of course, the kid says no. And then I say, oh, so class, does that prove that incentives don't matter? And they all chuckle, right? Well, they don't all do it, but the ones who aren't out to get me do. Right? So that's the kind of thing. So notice that that insight that incentives matter. You think that's true as an economist, but actually, how would you prove that? Right? Because it's not going to be true in every scenario in the sense that giving an incentive is going to alter behavior. So really what it means is economists think that incentives matter more than most other people typically think. <laughs> That's really what you mean by that. Okay. Or something like, you know, people make decisions on the margin. That's not really something you would prove through observation. That's more just thinking through the logic of well, what do you mean by that claim? And then once you understand exactly what it's claiming, then it's sort of obvious like, well, well yeah, of course, that's what people must be doing when they act, right? Or every choice comes with an opportunity cost. That's not something you can observe. That's something you would have to know. And, and so here, I'm kind of anticipating what Hoppe is doing with this. Just think through here, the logic of it. What would it mean to say, oh, that choice comes with an opportunity cost? It's not that you go out and say, okay, first of all, let's assemble a thousand choices, and then go test and see and how many of them were there is associated opportunity costs. And if this law is going to be right, we better find a thousand of them. No, that's not what it would mean. The very act of us labeling something as a choice then necessarily implies there must have been an opportunity cost associated with it. Right. So it's not that we we're going to go test and see, is there a choice for which there is no corresponding opportunity cost? Rather, it would mean are there things out there that we want to label as a choice, which actually maybe aren't so usefully labeled, right? So the, the example I've been using lately is I throw a rock up in the air and it, you know, goes through a normal trajectory of a projectile. It goes up and then comes back down. We wouldn't say, oh, originally the rock wanted to go up and then it got scared of the heights and, or of the height and changed its mind and it came back down. We wouldn't talk like that. That wouldn't make any sense. Instead, we would use the laws of physics and speak about gravity and forces and friction, blah, 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 inertia. There wouldn't be any subjective intentions or desires at all. Instead, if we saw a truck, though, a tractor trailer going down the street, and then it turned around and came back the other way, it would be fine to explain that by saying, oh, the driver originally wanted to go west and then realized he forgot his wallet and turned around and went east because he wanted to get his wallet or something like that, right? So they're using subjective language involving desires and goals. That's totally fine in the second scenario, 
and you know, we, we take this for granted. You might not even stop and think about it, but why is it? Why do we use the one type of language in one sphere and the other type of language in the other? It's because, well, people are involved when you start talking about intentions and desires, okay? And so the point is once you decide you're going to, as a scientist, a social scientist, use the language of motivation and desire and goal-seeking behavior, then that commits you to all sorts of other implications, right? So to say somebody engaged in a choice, you know, somebody comes into the room and is panting and picks up a glass of water and opens his mouth and pours it down his throat, we might say, oh, he chose to drink the water. And by us using that language, we're not just talking about the blind laws of physics following mechanically what the rules of nature are. We're instead saying, oh, the person had a goal. And he, you know, chose, he used a means to try to achieve that goal. And so given that that's the way we're talking now, it necessarily follows that there must have been an opportunity cost because the opportunity cost by definition is the subjective value placed on the next best alternative that can't be satisfied because the person made that choice. All right. So again, it's, it's not a question of, uh, do we need to test whether there's an opportunity cost? The fact that we're calling it a choice in the first place. Where, you know, the rock, when you throw the rock, it didn't choose to go up and then change its mind to come down. We don't use such language. So that's why there's not an opportunity cost associated with the rock's motion. There's an opportunity cost for me because I chose to throw the rock. Maybe the next best thing was to keep it with me and I could, you know, use it to start a fire or something. And so now, oh, now I can't because I threw it. So the opportunity cost, you know, is the value I placed on the fire or something like that. But there again, it's, it, the, the cost is associated with my choice to throw the rock. If I w- had been asleep and was just, you know, rolling around having a nightmare and my hand happened to have the rock in its palm and, you know, because I was just violently flinging my arms around, the rock went flying through the air. I guess you could say, you know, there's not a, a cost associated with that because it's not that I chose to throw the rock. That was just an incidental byproduct of my unconscious bodily m- movements, right? So you see the fundamental difference there. I I hope I'm not belaboring the point too much, but I really want you to see. So on the the one hand, this is real simple stuff. And some people might be like, oh, okay, yeah, we get it, Bob, move on. Geez, let's talk about capital reswitching. But on the other hand, you see so many very bright intellectuals who miss this stuff. Like, because they, you know, they're so eager to jump into the nitty gritty they just missed at the outset the distinction between the social and the natural sciences, for example. Hayek has a great essay. I forget the title of it. It's something like about the facts of the social sciences or something like that. But he makes the point in there, like to call something a weapon. You would think that's an objective description of the external world, but no, it's not. Right? What makes something a weapon ultimately involves an interplay with its physical characteristics, but also subjective intentions, right? A, you know, a, a writing instrument, I see even there. <laughs> the thing that we call a ballpoint pen, you know, could just be a writing instrument or it could be a weapon. It depends on how the person's using it. Okay, so back to Hoppe's essay here. He clarifies that Mises, when he gets into this a priori stuff, Mises was not originally wagging his finger at all the other economists and saying, stop doing economics the way you're doing it. Do it my way. My way is better than yours. That's not what Mises was saying. Mises thought he was merely codifying 
what the actual methodology of his peers had been, right? He, he just thought he observed what their method was. And then, so if Mises is writing methodologically, um, that's my, one of my pet peeves, folks. The words method and methodology are not interchangeable. And so you shouldn't use them as such. But in any event, Mises just thought he was codifying what it was that his peers were doing. Right? He, he wasn't prescribing, he was describing what they were doing. And the way Hoppe justifies that claim is to quote from some famous economist who came before Mises. So J.B. Say, for example, says, a treatise on political economy will be confined to the enunciation of a few general principles, not requiring even the support of proofs or illustrations, because these will be but the expression of what everyone will know, arranged in a form convenient for comprehending them, as well as in their whole scope, as is their relation to each other. And then later he said, in political economy, wherever the principles which constitute its basis are the rigorous deductions of undeniable general facts, rests upon an immovable foundation. And then let's also read Nassau Sr. says, economic, quote, premises consist of a few general propositions, the result of observations or consciousness, and scarcely requiring proof or even formal statement, which almost every man, as soon as he hears them, admits as familiar to his thoughts, or at least as included in his previous knowledge. And his inferences are nearly as general, and if he has reasoned correctly, as certain as his premises. And then later, Nassau Sr. says, economists should be, quote, aware that the science depends more on reasoning than on observation, and that its principal difficulty consists not in the ascertainment of its facts, but in the use of its terms. And then finally, John E. Carnes remarks that while, quote, mankind has no direct knowledge of ultimate physical principles, the economist starts with the knowledge of ultimate causes. The economist may thus be considered at the outset of his researches as already in possession of those ultimate principles governing the phenomena which form the subject of his study, the discovery of which, in the case of physical investigation, constitutes for the inquirer his most arduous task. Okay, so there you see this notion that in economics we're really just thinking through thought experiments and just reasoning you know, from basic insights that we all understand intuitively and to reach perhaps surprising conclusions, that's not something that Mises invented. He was just codifying what he thought political economy had been doing for centuries. All right? And it was really not until the 20th century that economics, especially in the hands of people like Paul Samuelson, really took a decidedly positivist slant and economists began thinking, oh, we have to be like the physicists because everyone knows they're super smart and they're awesome scientists. And so the way to make economics rigorous and scientific and non-ideological is to have it copy the methods of the physicists, right? So that's, that, that really happened in the 20th century definitively. And so that's why now it looks like the Austrians are these weird oddballs who sound like medieval theologians as opposed to the hard-nosed empirical scientists in the white lab coats, okay? Now, I want to talk a little bit more about what Hoppe does in these two essays here. Let me just read, because this is the, the passage that really blew my mind. And so let me pull it up here. 
Okay, before I get into this, though, I have to explain some categories of types of statements, the way Immanuel Kant diagrammed them, right? So there's two different dimensions. You can have a priori and a posteriori, and you can have analytic versus synthetic, okay? And so the standard way of explaining this stuff, and obviously I'm not a professional philosopher, so maybe I'm going to get this a little bit off, but I think it's a decent summary to say an a priori proposition is something that you can know the truth value of without consulting the external world. Whereas an a posteriori statement, you have to go consult the outside world. You have to like check your, your sensory data, for example. You, you, you need experience in order to tell whether it's true or not. And then a, an analytic statement is something that you can tell is true or false just by analyzing the terms of the statement itself, whereas a synthetic one, that's where it's saying a truth that's beyond just the, the terms involved. All right, so uh, th there's plenty of examples of an analytic a priori statement. So something like to say all bachelors are unmarried. There you can verify the truth of that statement. Yep, it's true, but it's just, it follows from the meaning of the terms, right? You don't have to go test a bunch of bachelors to see if they're unmarried. That would be silly, all right? A statement like the sun is warmer than the moon, that's a true statement, and it's telling us something about the world. It's not just, you know, rearranging terms that we've defined, but it's, synthetic a posteriori. All right, so it's telling us about the outside world. It's giving us new knowledge, as it were, but it's something that, you know, we experience is required. So the question is that, that Hoppe's raising is, could there be such a thing as synthetic a priori statements? So statements that aren't merely just, you know, rearranging definitions, like to say all bachelors are unmarried males. Like, so for example... If Martians showed up and we started telling them, oh, here's a list of statements that you might not know the truth value of. For example, did you know that all bachelors are unmarried males? It's not like the Martians would not be like, oh, wow, we know something more about the universe, except that they would know, okay, this is the way the English language works. In, in contrast, if we showed them, uh, you know, maybe one of our, maybe quantum computers is not something they knew how to build yet. And so if we showed them that, they could definitely say, oh yeah, we benefited from speaking to those earthlings on that. They would have learned something about the world, right? That way. Okay, so then the question is, what about, um, you know, it, could there be such a thing as a synthetic a priori statement? Now here, let me just mention, it's, I think there's actually a bit, I'm not sure that Mises himself calls it synthetic a priori. I think there's passages in human action where he calls them analytic. All right. So I'm just mentioning that if you really want to get into this stuff. But the important thing is whether you could have a priori statements that are, you know, giving us something useful, something beyond just, you know, definitions. Okay. So for me, like I think, for example, the Pythagorean theorem, you know, just think about it. If, if aliens showed up, and they had never seen a proof of the Pythagorean theorem, and we showed it to them, I do think they would have said, oh, wow, okay, yes, now our knowledge has expanded. 
in in what we would have shown him there would have been more useful to them and more important and significant than merely telling them, oh, the way we use words, a bachelor is an unmarried male. You know, that's really just giving them a convention that we've adopted. Whereas to show them Pythagorean theorem, I don't think the aliens say, oh, that just that's just how they use the word point. You, you, I hope I'm again. I, <laughs> I don't want to spend too much time on it if it's obvious, but on the other hand, I don't want to go over it too quickly because it's a really fundamental point there. And so again, if you're somebody who either yourself or you've seen people say it on the internet and you found it compelling, have bought into this criticism of Misesian praxeology by saying, oh, that's so unscientific. You don't think you need to go subject stuff to experimental verification? What are you, uh, you know, a theologian? Are you out of your mind? That you wouldn't talk like that about geometry and yet notice that you don't go test geometric statements. Incidentally, just to guard myself, I understand that modern physics doesn't think our world is actually Euclidean. And so you could say, actually, Bob, the Pythagorean theorem is false. Well, no, the theorem is not false. What you could say is some of the axioms aren't true. Maybe they're only approximately true. And so that's why under certain circumstances, like if you're near a black hole, maybe the Pythagorean theorem wouldn't even be close to being true. All right? So I get all that. Nonetheless, there's a reason we teach geometry classes. And yet, again, it's not that we're going out and testing that stuff empirically. Okay? So likewise, if aliens showed up and they had never taken an introductory economics class, I think we would be showing them a lot about the world. And, you know, the, the, the types of propositions they would get, again, it would be like the Pythagorean theorem that we could teach them saying, oh, if the minimum wage legislation holds wages above the market clearing level, then there will be unemployment. And, you know, what? so th that's not actually a prediction about, well, if they raise them in wage, something will happen because there could be other offsetting factors. Right, maybe there's a huge surge in productivity at the same time that they raise the minimum wage. So they raise the minimum wage and the unemployment rate among teenagers goes down. <gasps> Does that mean the proposition was wrong? No, it just means that you know other things aren't equal or that one of the, you know, depending on how the proposition was framed, one of the initial assumptions was violated or something like that. But the logic is correct. Just like the conclusion of the Pythagorean theorem might be wrong but that doesn't mean the proof was wrong. It just means one of the axioms wasn't true that you assumed was true. All right. And having said all that, it's not like just, oh, gee, that's kind of a silly word game. No, it's not. There's a reason we teach geometry and there's a reason we teach principles of economics. And again, it's not, we're, we're not merely giving, we're not just telling people conventions about definitions, the way teaching aliens, oh, a bachelor is an unmarried male. That's not really telling them much, except this is the way we use language. Likewise, um, or as opposed to that, if we taught them geometric proofs that they hadn't seen before, or any mathematical proofs, doesn't have to be limited to geometry, or if we taught them principles of economics that they hadn't heard before, I think they would genuinely have learned something from us, something important about, quote, the real world, even though we wouldn't have used uh, statistical tests to try to demonstrate the efficacy or the the truth value of these propositions. Uh, another example I use a lot in this stuff, let me just make sure you're getting the big picture here before I um, give you the, the passage from Hoppe that blew my mind, is if you believe in free trade, what, why? 
where where that come from? You know, you're a free trader. You know the tariffs are bad. Well, why? Where that come from? Was it because you looked at an empirical investigation where there were several governments that changed tariff rates, and then the econometrician carefully chose an instrumental variable to tease out cause and effect and blah, 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 blah. I'm guessing that's not what happened. I think probably is you read uh, Bastiat's Petition of the Candlemakers, or you read Henry Hazlitt, or you read something from Walter Williams or David Friedman, where they went through a thought experiment and just showed you using a fable or a, you know a simple you know let, let's think through this example da, 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 da. maybe maybe a thought experiment that involved two countries and two goods things like that and that's how you saw in quotation marks the logic of free trade you understood the principle involved the scales fell from your eyes and you're like oh yes now i see it oh, i'm a free trader for life now that's probably what happened right and so again I don't know what you want to call that, but that's not the way physics works. There, you know, Einstein could have some thought experiments about, well, gee, what happened? Let's assume for the sake of argument that the speed of light is the same to all observers. What would happen if you were in an elevator in space and do, 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 you know, all, all kinds of stuff you do like that? But ultimately, why do we think that Einstein is right and that Newton is wrong? It's because of empirical observation that those, those frameworks yielded different predictions and then you can go test them. Right. In contrast, the logic of free, if, if a country, you know, like Donald Trump, for example, he went through it, he raised tariffs, and it's not the GDP fell off a cliff. So does that mean Bastiat was wrong? No, it just means that there must have been other things at work. Right. Maybe the corporate income tax rate cut. Maybe the Fed did something, blah, 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 blah. Who knows? Maybe because of all the innovations in AI, or who knows what. But the point is, you would argue as a free trader that, oh, the U.S. would have been, you know, GDP would have been even higher had Trump not raised those tariffs or whatever. Okay, that's the way you would argue. All right, so again, that's the kind of thing involved. So before you're so quick to castigate Mises as being an unscientific fool for his cranky writings on methodology, just keep in mind, probably if you're even talking about Mises in the first place, it's because you're attracted to free market economics and I'm saying, I bet you what brought you into that camp was not because you went and saw a bunch of statistics or the results of experiments. Okay, so here's Hoppe now. Um, so he, he was talking about Kant, and then uh, Hoppe says, Mises provides the solution to this challenge. It is true, as Kant says, that true synthetic a priori propositions are grounded in self-evident axioms and that these axioms have to be understood by reflection upon ourselves rather than being in any meaningful sense observable. Yet we have to go one step further. We must recognize that such necessary truths are not simply categories of our mind, but that our mind is one of acting persons. Our mental categories have to be understood as ultimately grounded in categories of action. And as soon as this is recognized, all idealistic suggestions immediately disappear. Instead, an epistemology claiming the existence of true synthetic a priori propositions becomes a realistic epistemology. Since it is understood as ultimately grounded in categories of action, the gulf between the mental and the real outside physical world is bridged. As categories of action, they must be mental things, 
as much as they are characteristics of reality, for it is through actions that the mind and reality make contact. Okay, so that is the stuff that blew him. I mean, I don't think he uses this frame, this, this terminology here, but I think what Hop is getting at there is Mises has solved the famous mind-body problem of philosophy, right? This idea that, oh, we, we have this subjective mental experience. It seems like we're watching a movie and we're somewhere inside of our head and, you know, the eyes are the, you know, the screen and there's sound coming through our ears and, you know, that kind of stuff. But there's also physical laws governing mere matter that's mindless. And yet it does seem like we somehow can influence events, doesn't it? And when you try to say, well, how is that possible? What does that mean? You know, could there be free will? Is that compatible with a deterministic physical universe? And, you know, it gets into really deep stuff. And I think what Hoppe is doing here is he's saying, hey, guys, what Mises is doing when he's writing up on the methodology of economics is he's actually solving these, these very thorny th- philosophical problems, right? That this mind-body gap or the mind-body problem, that's all solved by the statement humans act, right? Because think about it. When we say humans act, what we're saying is we as social scientists observing phenomena out there, certain molecules in motion, we're going to classify a subset of those observations as human action, but not all of them, right? The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. We don't say nowadays, oh, that's because the sun felt unsatisfactory when it was down below the horizon and then, you know, is a, is a way of reducing its uneasiness went up into the sky. We don't talk like that. But when we see certain types of movements of human bodies, we just matter-of-factly categorize that as action, And so we think there are minds at work causing those bodies to behave in that manner. And so again, you know, Hoppe is is linking there and saying what Mises did here, praxeology, is this is the scientific study of the interaction between minds and bodies. And so, you know, you can say what you will about that, but that's not stupid stuff. That's really high-level, amazing considerations. And I, I haven't seen other people writing on just that type of topic, all right? And so, anyway, I'm not going to do justice to it here. I'll just stop there and just encourage you if the kind of thing I'm talking about there intrigues you and you want to go learn more, by all means, get Hoppe's monograph here. It's, you know, free PDF at the Mises Institute. I'll give a link. So, again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 86 to see all these links. Also, if you want to see, you know, my take on this stuff, again, the fullest exposition I gave was in the opening chapters of my book choice, which in case you don't know what I did with choice, it's like a 300 so page book going through taking human action and distilling it down into its essentials with language that's accessible to an undergrad. So that that's what my book choice is. Okay. With that, I will wrap up this episode. Thanks for listening folks. And I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of the Bob Murphy show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.